Uh, hey, this is Ross Bain with World Blame Bubble Radio. Uh, we're here interviewing Greg Stolze uh, about unknown armies and game design and Kickstarter and all kinds of great stuff. Uh, and I'm, but I'm joined here with Caleb because uh, he is also a huge uh, Stolze fanboy and unknown armies fanboy. So uh, we're <laughs> we're really excited about a game uh, that we've always admired, and now we'll have a chance to actually run and play uh, because. It, it, I don't know, it, it, Unknown Armies has been often uh, commented as, oh, the greatest game that I, I don't know how to run or play because uh, something about it is, is kind of intimidating to a lot of people. Um, the, the quality of the writing and the uh, sort of complexity of the setting. Uh, but maybe uh, we should let Greg uh, try and sell the game in, um, first. Uh, Greg, um, what is uh, the new edition of Unknown Armies. Uh, how is this different from uh, the previous edition? Um, well, one thing they've been pointing out in the... Uh, okay, so when you when you pledge for the Kickstarter, you get access to, I think it's the gamma version of the playtest document, right? Mm-hmm. So that, you know, people are, of course, hunting for typos, but also, you know, saying, well... You know, you left out my favorite thing, and I wish my favorite thing was in it. Um, and so one thing people have, you know, kind of pulled out is they're like, wow, this just opens up with, okay, here's how the cosmology of this setting works, and it's right near the front of book one. So there's, you know, there's no mysterious stuff. And uh, something we did in the second edition was that it was broken down by street level, uh, global level, cosmic level. And so if you were on the street level, you knew a few weird things. And if you were on, you know, the global level, then you had a, a broader view of how things worked. And if you were on the cosmic level, you knew the real truth of what was going on or had at least heard it. And here, it's just like, now, here, here's... We're not going to be coy about uh, the fact that the cosmos imagined here is sort of a supernatural republican democracy. Um, should I go into you know, the the kind of idea behind unknown armies? Uh, definitely. I, I think there's a lot of. Um, I know okay. uh, I'm relatively new to tabletop gaming, considering the. Uh, I started playing when I was seven. Uh, tendency of the hobby. Uh, so I'm sure there uh, are other people like me who uh, maybe need to discover it anew. Um, all right. So the setting, which John Tynes, uh, you know, came up with so long ago, the idea is that humans are the most important thing in the cosmos. It's a very humanist, humanocentric uh, setting. And the idea is that Individual humans, not so important. But in the collective, humanity has tremendous occult power. And that, in fact, all magic power, the the definitional energies underlying the cosmos, all emanate from humanity uh, in total. And so the way this plays out is that when a social role becomes really important and everyone or a lot of people recognize that role. So like the mother, the warrior, the hunter, these, these archetypal roles that recur in every culture. As soon as these get a critical mass of attention from everybody, the individual who best embodies that role stops being human and becomes an immortal archetype existing on a higher plane where probability and reality are one. And this higher plane in the game is called the statosphere. And the collective group of social roles that have evolved into this form are called the invisible clergy. So there are, they're like gods of traditional mythology in that they tamper with the lives of mere mortals and pursue their own agendas. But at the same time, they are maybe even a little less human-like than your typical Greek myths, 
and are more like you know sort of some kind of abstract ideas. There, they do not have a normal, uh, a normal ethos. They have you know their pure agenda. Uh, so that's all going on. Meanwhile, the humans back on Earth who embody these roles in reflection of the archetype. So if you act like the archetypal mother, things will start to work out for you in a mothering way. The more you act out the role, the more reality conforms to your inhabitants of that role. If you are constantly warlike, then the warrior archetype will infuse your life with meaning, and you will become what's called an avatar. Things just go more and more your way as long as you continue to stay in the current. Uh, so that's one of the options, is you can be an avatar and say, oh, I'm going, to, I'm going to act like the true king or the necessary servant or the loyal laborer or one of these other uh, you know, tarot-like roles. And in this fashion, I will you know, be able to game the system. Uh, the end game of the cosmology is that as soon as 333 of these archetypal roles are assigned, the universe is destroyed. The 333 archetypes fuse into a single entity that recreates the universe and dies in the process. And the whole thing starts over having reset to zero. So that is the mythology that is going on in the background of the game. And it can be extremely, extremely relevant to the games you play at your table. Uh, in as much as you can be one of these avatars, you can be trying to elevate an archetype to uh, the point that someone gets incepted into the inv invisible clergy. Or you can be trying to remove an archetype from the invisible clergy, which is somewhat akin to trying to assassinate a god, but hey, that's what we roleplay for, right? <laughs> yeah. Murder hobos got a murder hobo. Yeah. <laughs> postmodern mo murder hobos have to postmodern murder. I mean, <laughs> I'm going to slaughter this idea of, moder of modernity. Yep. <laughs> Who's uh... with me? <laughs> Come on, Derrida, it'll be a laugh. <laughs> a group of French philosophers take on an archetype. Uh, and then well, I just got my campaign to... idea. <laughs> uh, but that's not the, the only major element uh, of Unknown Armies. Uh, there's also the Adepts as well. Yes. Uh, and Adepts, in, in the book, I described it as, uh, you know, avatars are like the cool people who dress right and as a consequence, they get to skip past the velvet rope and get let into the club and get into the VIP room. So that's avatars. Adepts are the people getting thrown out and screaming at the bouncer, well, I'll just start my own club, and it'll be awesome, and we'll have gambling and klezmer music. Uh, adepts are the people who look at the... who. who focus on one particular aspect of commonly accepted reality and reject what is commonly accepted about it. They do it wrong, and they do it wrong but so intensely that reality deforms to conform with their will. Uh, so every magic school in Unknown Armies is based on something of great concern to most people. Um, an example um, from... The, okay, so what, what was your favorite from the earlier editions? Um, I really like the Videomancer and the Urbanomancer, uh, um, I think. Or the Cleomancer, right? The, the one about places. Yes. Uh, was there a separate one for urban romancers? Uh, yes. There were urba okay, so there were urbanomancers. Are probably a good good example to give. Uh, you know, videomancers as written in second edition would be pretty much unplayable today, just because the nature of watching TV has changed. <laughs> when back when you know we wrote second edition, that seemed like it was going to be that way forever. 
Um, but an Urbanomancer in Unknown Armies is someone who takes their strength from the city and is in tune with the city. But in the same way uh, that, you know, you or me sees a city as, okay, it's where there's a bunch of people and enough people have gotten there that there's a big enough tax base that they can have cool stuff like airports and museums and a thriving foodie scene. But it's not anything more than that. Whereas to an adept, no, a city is more than that. A city has all those other elements, you know, as a result of its cityness and not as, uh, you know, the direct reason for it. You know, the direct... Okay, I've lost my uh, the thread of my thought because of the sangria, but um, <laughs> but the well, there's also dipsomancy, uh, which I assume. Oh yes, which you know the idea the the central paradox there is that you know if you drink enough, you become more yourself, but you also kind of become less yourself due to inhibit lowered inhibitions and less self control. So adepts have always have, you know, some particular worldview that they're obsessed with. And to the extent that it makes it hard, it makes it very hard to be normal. And uh, by staying in touch with this, they can build up these packets of magical energy, which they then expend to perform uh, thematically appropriate actions. So if you're an Urbanomancer and you've built up some magical charges, you can use them to, you know, just pass unseen through the city or move through its secret paths uh, or to... um, I'm trying to remember some of the other. Uh, well, they all had like a blast. They like and for the for the Euromancers, they they could like the city attacks them in some way, like a bit of uh, something, uh, so a brick from a nearby building falls on right. you know, someone's head. Uh, uh, just in the new it. edition, I've got Viaturges, who are the uh, you know American Highway. They're pretty much just the song "Born to Run." Uh, translated into Unknown Armies uh, magic, where, uh, you know, they they have their their beautiful car and they're all about the freedom of the road, but they lose their power if they ever uh, stay in, stay under the same roof, uh, like a second or third time. In the same way that Urbanomancers uh, have a taboo against touching natural soil and if they ever do they lose all their uh their stored energies but uh the urbanoman they or i'm sorry the viaturge blast is you can just put a curse on someone that the next time they step into the street no matter how abandoned it is you know how bad no matter how far it is no matter how careful they are you're gonna get hit by a car <laughs> nice. uh, uh, well, that, that's a good segue because I know um, everyone else is going to want to very much know the the new adept schools because uh, that definitely what is what first sold the game to me. So, uh, what new uh, freaky weaponized insanities are there in the new uh, version? And see, the the people have been complaining that they're not uh, and not quite crazy enough, uh, but, I, you know, I like them. Uh, <laughs> we finally did Cinemancy, where uh, you are obsessed with movies and the depiction of reality and kind of the way that the artifice of film influences the reality of social life. And so they are people who can force reality to conform to film norms. Uh, so it's, you know, things like, oh, no, I'm t- I'm just going to turn on the spell that makes me an action hero for, uh, you know, ten minutes and never have to reload. Uh, or I'm going to I'm gonna change things so that, you know, I'm, I'm going to enter a comedy and drop a banana peel and this guy will fall on the banana peel, but he won't get really hurt. And he won't be able to stand up. <laughs> he will just ridiculously flail. Uh, so that was one. Um, Mothumancy is kind of uh, an, an outgrowth of one of the uh, 
the game's old societies uh, has developed a new adept school which is about the destruction of authority. And it, it's, you know, their nickname is Flag Burners. And their whole raison d'etre is to liberate people from constricting social structures. And so the way that they charge up is, okay, I need to transgress my own boundaries. So you can get uh, minor charges by doing something that would have driven you, in that, that would cause a... Uh, uh, a mental health check if you weren't already acclimated to it. Um, the way they get serious charges is by deliberately doing something that forces them to take a madness check. So they risk going crazy all the time. Or the other way they can charge up significantly is by convincing someone else to do something that forces that person to take a check. So they are constantly, you know, they're either constantly self-destructing or constantly encouraging others to self-destruct. I think I hear Ross actually making one of those characters. <laughs> it does sound very tempting. I, uh, <laughs> and so their, uh, their magic is all based around, okay, well, here's how society perceives you. And here is, you know, I'm going to just force you into a new social role. Uh, I'm going to paste the label white supremacist on you, and everybody who meets you will believe that that's true of you. And, you know, when they read your job application, they will think that there's... They won't be able to put their finger on what seems so white supremacy about it. But it'll be there. <laughs> wow. Uh... It's... it's this is where the horror of Unknown Armies arises. We always say it's a horror game, and it's the horror that arises from what people do when you give them actual power. Uh, uh, and what they're willing to do to get it. Uh, and what they're willing to do to, to, do to acquire power. Uh, yeah. The whole deal, to, to rewind back to that uh, Republican democracy cosmology I was talking about earlier, um, the implications of that are that every horrific thing that has happened in the history of mankind happened because someone from the previous incarnation wanted that or felt that it should be there or felt that it was okay for it to be there. Humanity did that to itself. Every bad thing that happens happens for a purpose and a reason, and that reason is us. By the same token, every great thing that happens happens because of us. There are no... I, the reason Tynes sort of went in this direction, um, he came up with this idea while he was uh, deep in the heart of uh, pagan publishing country, and, you know, loves the his... dark country. Yeah, Cthulhu, but wanted something where, you know, the, the subtext of Cthulhu is that we are all random blobs in the universe. We are specks. We are, you know, ants crawling over someone else's picnic. And, you know, the ant never gets to decide what gets packed in the picnic basket. Uh, and that's horrifying, but it's been done a lot. So that was, you know, one thing he didn't want to do. Um, he'd also just read uh, Umberto Eco's Foucault's Pendulum, which was, uh, you know, sort of a... He, he called it the death blow to the traditional alchemy, Templar, Illuminati ideas of, uh, of occultism with, you know, the, the robes and the candles and the, the Latin incantations. He's like, no, I, I just could not take that seriously after reading uh, Ghost <laughs> Pendulum. And so he, so basically what we've done is replaced uh, the incense and uh, chalked pentagrams with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. All right. Um, so some of the other new schools, uh, one... The, my favorite that I wrote, I think, is agromancy, which is farm-based magic, which sounds unspeakably lame, right? 
but I, but, but in, you know, my, my narcissistic way, I'm very pleased with it. Uh, because what it is about is taking nature and taking the chaos of nature and sort of breaking it to harness and making it serve man. And they charge up by raising an, lovingly raising an animal from, you know, its birth or hatching up to full adulthood and then personally slaughtering it. And that, that's how they charge up is, you know, Oh, this cow's at slaughter weight. Here comes a significant charge. Uh, and, you know, some of them do it with human sacrifice, but really that's, that's frowned upon. <laughs> but I mean, in return, you know, they get control over the land and, uh, you know, can improve crops and animals and control what is normally random, uh, random in nature. Uh, I mean, you have, I mean, in that case, it makes perfect sense. I mean, you have thousands of years worth of, uh, you know, occult tradition behind it. You know, every fertility cult, every, uh, I mean, that's how occult practices got started. Let's pray to the, what do we have to give to the gods to make our, you know, make the crops grow? And, I'd you know, really like to not starve. Yeah, I'd really like to not starve, <laughs> you know, the golden bow and all that. Uh, the wicker man, you know. Uh, uh, I, um and these sound fascinating. Um, one thing I've heard is, uh, you know, one of the things that about the original Unknown Armies that really gripped people when it came out was the were the game mechanics and uh, how light they were, yet how expressive they were of the setting uh, and the purpose of the game. You know, with the sanity tracks um, and the percentile system. Um, have you done a lot of work uh, to revise the mechanics, or is it was it pretty much gold? And you're like, yeah, no, it's fine. No, no, uh, we changed it. We, uh, I think that gaming in general has moved in a direction of lightness and reduced handling time since the what 2004 when the last edition came out. 2006. Mm-hmm. I can't remember when UA2 was released, but I think 2002. It says that it says that on the Kickstarter page. Right? That, that long ago, <laughs> so very long. Um, so I think things have moved in a more streamlined direction. Uh, and you know, I've also learned more about uh, rich dice uh, kind of design. And okay, how can I make this element of a game mechanic do multiple things so that instead of having 20 things to complete 20 tasks. I have five things, each of which completes four tasks, which is, you know, abstract and kind of high end. But um, so the way I approached uh, streamlining second edition was I'm like, okay, what's fun? What do people like? When people are talking about their characters, what do they talk about? And I came up with, okay, they talk about the do-it-yourself skills. And, you know, people liked that. And and the idea in uh, the mechanics is that you pick, so, you know, instead of having a set list where you go down and you're like, okay, I guess he's got like 5% in disguise and 15% in, uh, you know, preen for the camera or whatever, uh, you can instead just say, okay, my guy is a podcaster. You know, he's got run podcasts at 60%. Uh, And then you define a few few basic tasks that being a podcaster lets you roll for. So you can substitute it for some uh, of the abilities, which I'll talk about later. Uh, But the, the sort of main idea with identities, which are what we're calling do-it-yourself skills now, is that, you know, if it comes down to it, you can say, well, of course I can do blank because I'm a blank. So it's like, you don't have a computer science skill, but of course you can figure out how to record off of Skype because you're a podcaster. (laughs) Or, of course you can clean up this audio because you're a podcaster. Or, of course, I can, uh, you know, 
wreck it. Of course, I can poke through this guy's uh, medicine cabinet and find out what's going on with his health. I'm a doctor. Or, I don't know, give me another uh, another identity. What would you be able to naturally do as a school teacher? It's, uh, you know, oh, of course I, uh, you know, of course I have buddies in the unions. I'm a school teacher. Yeah. Okay, so of course it's kind of I can finish all this sangria. I'm a school teacher. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> I see. So that's that's the first thing was I kind of expanded on the do-it-yourself skills and defined a little more what they do. Um, previously, uh, Unknown Armies Two had these kind of boring stats, body and mind, and uh, you know, no one. No one ever seemed to really care about them much. They were sort of the the skeleton that the good stuff hung off of. So what people did like, however, was the Madness Meter of Unknown Armies 2, which has been regenerated as the shock gauge in uh, Unknown Armies 3 and does even more. So the idea behind this is uh, there are five tracks on it. And they measure the sort of psychological abuse you've endured in your life. And the five categories are helplessness, isolation, violence, the unnatural, and self. That last one being, you know, what? how much have you betrayed your own values or chickened out on things that you thought you would really fight for? Um, so the way I've set it up now, it used to be that you'd get, you know, basic skills that just about anyone could attempt were based on these stats or you'd be assigned some, but now I've based them off how I've got, you know, 10 skills, uh, five of them based on how many hardened notches you have in one of these gauges and five of them based on how many open notches you have in the gauge. And the way a hard notch works is that if you confront a particular uh, threat to your stability, you roll to see whether you can incorporate this into your worldview or whether you fail. So for a self-check, suppose you'd always thought of yourself as, you know, a morally upright person, but you cheat on your wife. So this is a shock to your system because you're like, I didn't think I'd do that. Wow, I really failed to have integrity. And so you would roll, and if you succeeded at the roll to resist the damage, you would be like, well, just one time, uh, you know, these ideas of marital fidelity are really just a patriarchal concept, <laughs> right? Or you could, you know, fail it and wind up, uh, you know, weeping in the shower, muttering, I'm a scumbag, I'm a scumbag, I'm a scumbag, over and over. So either way, uh, if you fail it, you get a fail notch, and if you rack up enough fail notches, your ability to deal with things starts to seriously unravel. But if you succeed at confronting the shock, you check in another hard notch, and you become a little more resilient. Because, you know, after you've broken marital trust, well, now suddenly lying on your taxes doesn't seem like such a huge transgression, (laughs) does it? So the way this works for all the gauges is that, you know, if you've gone through a bunch of isolation checks and been rejected by society and had to do time in uh, uh, an isolation ward or in solitary confinement and have racked up a bunch of those hard notches, well, you know, not getting invited to the Christmas party is not gonna threaten you. You're just gonna be like, okay, got five hard notches. That's a rank one challenge at best. Yeah, bounces off my tough skin and moves on. But because there are now attributes or abilities to get things done based on how many open notches you have, the more armored up you are and the more resilient you are to... Basically, the more 
bad stuff you've incorporated into your psyche, the more you're able to deal with bad stuff. So if you've got a bunch of hard notches in violence, you will be a nasty street fighter even if you haven't trained for it just because you've got that that natural viciousness has been brought to the fore. However, your ability to get along with people and create a good impression is based on how many open notches you have in violence because, you know... If you show up and your knuckles are just covered in callus and you've got the cauliflower ears and that thousand-yard murder stare, people find that off-putting. So if you've, uh, if you've played A Dirty World, which is one of my other games, I pretty much stole this idea from that. Um, now, identities, one of the things they can do is substitute for these abilities. So you can have a character and say, oh... You know, I'm, um, let me let me think of an example that's not based on violence, even though that's the, the really straightforward one. Um, you could have it be, you know, okay, my identity is an actor. So, of course, I know how to, you know, put on a false beard. I'm an actor, that kind of thing. But also, you can say, even though I haven't lived a substantially dishonest lie... Uh, a dis- substantially dishonest life, I'm good at lying because I can get into character. So you can say, okay, my identity as an actor serves as my ability to lie. And now, no matter how many open or hardened notches I have on the gauge that gives you your lying ability, I will always be able to lie as an actor. Make sense? Yep. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, you're doing a lot of work with a very few uh, systems. I mean, the the identities, uh, skill mechanics. I mean, you're. It sounds like you're combining elements of like fate aspects, uh, using the social mechanics, uh, kind of a networking thing, and uh, having like the 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 shot gauge actually work as kind of a skill thing is also fascinating. Um, and <laughs> is this ready to play? I, I noticed in the Kickstarter oh, yeah. that you you have gamma what you call the gamma version of the playtest rules. Uh, have people already been playing it, sending in playtest notes? Uh, I've been playing it. I uh, <laughs> played it for about six months, and uh, they've also had uh, an Atlas playtest, and a few other people have had it longer than before the Kickstarter and been playing it. So, yeah, if you get it off the Kickstarter, you can play it right now. You know, you'll just be playing the version that uh, we haven't gone in and really finessed yet. Okay. Um, it, so well, you have all three versions of the books, or all three books in this format, or just... I believe so. Um, I'm 90% sure you get all three. Okay. Yeah, there's, th- there's three in the release. Okay. He said uh, spending too much money on the Kickstarter. <laughs> um, well, no, just the right amount of money. Uh, so uh, I, had a, I had a question. Um, so... I love the term postmodern magic, and I know that you have been um, working with Delta Green as well, and the talk about that has been uh, updating the setting based off, you know, post-9-11 and and changes in the world. Uh, But um, how how has the uh, setting evolved since, I guess 2002 when U18 came out. Like, what, have, like, what, have, what are we incorporating, what are we incorporating in the real world, world, and how is that, how is that uh, reflecting, reflecting in the cosmology? Well, everybody has a cell phone now. Um, <laughs> okay, answered. All right, moving on. Um, <laughs> um, I have. I, I don't think that the setting needed as much updating as uh, Delta Green did because if you compare uh, Delta Green to Unknown Armies 2. Um, They both have, you know, sort of the Tyne's fingerprints all over them. But whereas uh, Delta... Okay, so the the problem that you've mentioned with Unknown Armies has been, oh, what a... This is a fascinating thing, but I have no idea what you actually do with it. Whereas that... What a... That is not a problem with Delta Green. You know exactly what you're signing up for in a Delta Green game, which is, oh, I'm going to be a federal agent who you know, fights monsters despite being 
entirely unequipped to handle that task. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's baked in. Um, so Delta Green can work as a very railroady style game, which is fine. Um, I think of dungeons as basically, you know, any dungeon-based game is tends to be very railroady because you have only a limited number of options. Uh, a dungeon is basically an elaborate train set with lots of switching yards. Uh, and in Delta Green, the scenarios I've written for that, I, I came into them with the pers- with the perspective that, okay, you agents are fated to have an encounter with the supernatural. And what's in question is whether you have this encounter unprepared or whether you manage to scrape together some resources that will, you know, might let you survive or uh, overcome it. So in Unknown Armies, however, there is no central endoskeleton definition of, you know, what a UA game looks like. And the reason for that, I think this can possibly be tracked back to that difference between the uh, the different cosmological philosophies, if I want to go really big picture. Because, you know, Delta Green works for a Call of Cthulhu Mythos game because you're essentially unfree. You are essentially just being buffeted around by circumstance. Um, so it makes perfect sense that the game framework is you will be told to go here and do this. But in Unknown Armies, you are fundamentally a free and autonomous being. So yeah, the, have, the horror the is your horror amount is your of control, control, not your total not lack of control. control. Right. And so one thing, you know, a lot of a lot of game scenarios work great because they are reactive and conservative, right? I don't want the world to end because that's where I keep my stuff. Therefore, <laughs> I will go into the Temple of Elemental Evil and keep them from ending the world. Or, uh, you know, the Nefandi are attacking our mage school and we must protect it from them while at the same time protecting it from the poor benighted sleepers who have no idea what we're what's going on. Uh, so that's, you know, that's a very functional structure and you can build that into, uh, you know, the new unknown armies. But what I've tried to do is make it more amenable to make a sandbox style game where you're just given a setting and said, okay, you decide existentialist style what this is about, what's important, what matters, what your goals are, you decide what is a win for you. And those types of games always sound really great, right? But they're extremely, extremely hard to run because you never know what crazy decision your players are going to go at this week. And so what I've tried to do, you've, you've got this continuum. So you've got the railroad on one side, which, uh, and you know, the, the saying goes, nobody mu- nobody complains about a railroad if the scenery is awesome and the last stop is awesome town. And on the other end, you've got the sandbox where, you know, there's all this freedom to create and where, you know, you're not constrained by, by uh, a limited subset of options. So what I've tried to do is find a way to get the benefits of both approaches And the way I've done that is at the very beginning of the very first session, before creating any characters, character creation is done collaboratively, so you don't have all these, you know, disconnected characters who have no reason to trust one another, yet somehow they're all together for the game, which is another huge pain that anyone who's run a game has (laughs) probably encountered, Um, you know. Why are the paladin and the chaotic evil rogue in the same party? I don't get it. Uh, wouldn't one of them just kill the other in after like 48 hours? <laughs> so uh, in this case, you start out with an objective, which is, you know, this is the change 
we want to see in the world. Uh, and you could make this a reactive change. The, the example I give uh, in the main book is that, oh, there's this guy, Atradovec, and we all hate him for some reason. So you can set it up like that quite clearly, but you could also do it as, uh, you know, our neighborhood is a hellhole and we are going to make our neighborhood better. We are going to brighten up the corner where we are. And once you have picked that objective, you build characters around that who know each other and who have a reason, who have the ability to pursue this objective and a reason to be invested in it. So it's like a sandbox in that the players define where things are going and the players set what the game is about. But in doing that, they're setting down railroad tracks so that the GM can run it more like a railroad game. The mechanic at the heart of this is an objective rating. So suppose your objective is make our, our hellhole neighborhood a better place. That starts out at a big fat zero. But you can define a bunch of objectives or... Uh, uh, oh, what's the what's the word they use in uh, in software development now that that everyone started saying um, milestones? Miles, milestones, yeah. So you define you know these points on your course, and so it could be oh well you know the first thing we need to do is find a way to take care of these poltergeists that are making everyone that are driving down our property values, or you know we're going to drive out the, uh, you know, the criminal element, or we're going to open a business that has good jobs. You know, all of these things are, okay, I can now center an adventure around this. I can center an adventure around, uh, you're trying to get rid of the poltergeist. I can center an adventure around, oh, you're trying to get rid of the criminal element. You're trying to open a business. As you accomplish these, your objective score gets bigger and bigger and bigger. One of the complaints about previous uh, editions of Unknown Armies, a complaint I wanted to address, was the idea that you fail at your roles a lot. And I'm oh, I'm okay with that, because I don't think UA should be about hyper-competent people who you know, walk away from the explosion coolly while not looking back. That it is about people who have to work harder than they maybe wanted to to accomplish their, uh, you know, twisted or beautiful ends. Uh, so the what I'm working at with the, uh, you know, to, to address the perception that there is a bad failure problem is that, okay, if you get your objective up to 100%, it happens. It doesn't matter how bad your roles are as long as you're continuing to hit points on your course and get your objective improved. Once it hits 100%, you know, the momentum of events takes over and it goes. You know, it may me it may need a little nudge. You know, you may have to come up with one final event that makes it possible, but once you get that, there you go. So, uh, you know, if your uh, example, I, I think I've got an example in the objective rules where the objective is just, you know, uh, kill Steve. And so if you get that up to 100, you don't need to roll to kill Steve. One of your attempts, you know, oh, well, we, we put poison in his cigars and we did all this other stuff. It, it's really like the CIA with Castro, right? Except it oh, works. Right. It works. Yeah, except it works. Well, and the other thing you can do with your objective, here's the fun part from the GM's perspective, is that you can take your objective and use it to, instead of, you know, getting what you want, you can prevent someone else from getting what they want. Uh, and the example that I give is that, okay, so suppose you've got an objective which is build a new community theater and you find out that there's this other group operating in your neighborhood and they've got an objective and their objective is summon the devourer of crowns for a mass soul reaving. <laughs> and you decide, 
stopping that sounds a little more important than getting our community theater. <laughs> is that you can take the percentages in your objective and just rake out that many percentiles from theirs. So if you're at build community theater 57% and they're at mass soul reaving 40%, it's just like, nope, sorry, you're done. You you can't have it. Sorry, Devourer of Crowns. You're going to have to pick a new objective because that one just got buried. I want to destroy want to humanity, destroy but they're putting, they're putting on Greece. On Greece. <laughs> <laughs> so that is... That is how objectives work, and a lot of what's in the second book is how the GM can use the objective and, you know, the percentiles in it and the things the players themselves have decided to do in pursuing it. And I'm like, okay, now your job is no longer, you know, step one, be a great GM. That's the only step. <laughs> Like okay, we're gonna break. We're gonna break being a great GM into a bunch of little substeps that make it easier, so that you don't just have to do everything all at once, but that you can say, okay, so here's what I do if I want to help them get their objective, uh, you know, advance their objective, but at cost. Here's what I do if I want to distract them from their objective. Uh, you know, here's what I do if I want them to you know, be tempted to leave the objective for something else. So once you've got that objective in place and you know where the characters are headed, it's a lot easier to be spontaneous in the sandbox because it's no longer open on every side. There's at least something to navigate by. Yeah, I was yeah, always... I was always... Uh, intimidated uh, by the game because I, I, these people I, literally I, see a different see reality. reality. How do I get them in an ensemble cast? cast. Uh, but, uh, that but that sounds like it sounds really like it solves really that solves problem that nicely. Here's uh, hoping. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, um, I have some questions uh, from the spin-off forums. I ask them what kind of questions they would want. Um, um, one question is about the room is about the pronunciation. pronunciation. Mm. Uh, how are they supposed are they to be used supposed in a game in since your character is totally different now? Totally different now. Um, how, yeah, so how how would you actually implement them in a game? Are they more of like a, a, sort of a plot device? And also, obviously, it's one the rooms uh, for those who are not familiar. Okay. The idea behind the House of Renunciation is that it is a metaphysical space and when you enter it, it takes something that's central to your personality and inverts it. Uh, so, and there, there are rooms in the house where you get dragged off to become your own worst enemy or to have, uh, you know, something you deeply believed in changed. Um, so it might be that there's a room where loyal servants are reworked to become disloyal servants. But there's another room where loyal servants are reworked to become loyal masters. And instead of obeying others, they seek to be obeyed. So there's all kinds of different reversals that can happen. In fact, I'm, uh, I'm working on a novel right now where the, uh, the plot is that the protagonist has uh, undergone renunciation through a process that takes the person you love the most and makes them the person you hate the most. So it, that's, that's complicated. Um, the way you could use them in play, um, let's see what I can think of. You can start out all having come out of the Room of Renunciation together. And so that could be sort of the... the uh, the cornerstone of your playgroup is, you know, oh, we all went through this experience, and now because we've changed so much, it's very hard to get along with our normal lives. Uh, but we at least have each other. And, you know, this guy believes me, you know, because no matter what else he's going through, he was in the room, too. So that's option one. Uh, option two is if you get tired of your character and want to make some radical change, 
Uh, you can send him through the rumor renunciation and, oh, yeah, you know, you know how he was annoyingly violent? Now he's annoyingly pacifistic. And it's not quite as radical as generating a new character, but it's a, you know, it's a powerful plot twist. Um, and speaking of which, as a GM, you can hold it up that, okay, yeah, um, there's something that you can achieve for your objective, but only if you go through the house. So that's a third way to use it. Uh, a fourth is, yeah, you know, why are these people acting so weird? Oh, they've all been through the house. Or there is a room of renunciation where its agenda lies athwart our objective. And so we are go it's going to be trying to invert the people we know or spit out agents at us to mess with our stuff. So there you go. Four ways to use the House of Renunciation. Oh, oh. very cool. Um, um, let's see, another question. Another question. Uh, are you still considering making a comic uh, in the setting? And if so, what, what's the timeline for that? Project? Oh, was, it, was I ever considering that? I mean... <laughs> Uh, what the guy uh, thinks the guy and Kynes were considering, considering it's in... Oh! Yeah. Okay, Tynes yeah. was considering one, and he had yeah. some beautiful yeah. artwork from Brian Snowdy, but, um, no, I think both of them have moved on from that, that, uh, that idea. Um, okay. Okay. I am toying... No, okay, I will be honest. <laughs> I'm 60,000 words into an Unknown Army's novel, which is is not the smartest business move I could have made because I did not have a publisher for it yet. But Just a writing okay. exercise. Just 60K. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, when I started it, it was super fun. In, in, my, in my defense, when I started it, it just seemed like a good time. Uh, and then about twenty or 30,000 words in, suddenly it was work. But I'm not afraid of a little work as long as it's not anything that involves heavy lifting or loud noises. So, uh, yeah, I've been working on this novel, which, as I mentioned, is about this this renunciate uh, and also avatar politics. And also this guy named Rico who... Oh, man. <laughs> Um, uh, let's see here. What are the systems you've written? What are you the most proud of game mechanics-wise? Mechanics what do you most what enjoy, you playing? enjoy playing? Oh, I enjoy playing, you know, all kinds of games. Um, my enjoyment is based less on mechanics than on, I would say, you know, the energy at the table, frankly. Mm -hmm. Uh if I'm playing a game with hilarious people who are friends of mine who are good at this and commit to their roles and, you know, and the GM is constantly throwing wacky stuff at us, yeah, I'm going to have fun regardless of what the mechanics are unless they're really, really broken and annoying. Um, for myself, from the mechanics I have built, I think... The best one so far is the one roll engine. Uh, a lot of, you know, just a lot of cool stuff kind of came out of that spontaneously. Um, it is, if you're unfamiliar with it, you roll a pool of 10-sided dice and look for sets and matches. And so any time you get two dice that show, two or more dice that show, show the same result you've got some degree of success. But because there are multiple ways that uh, a success set can match up, so you could have three ones, and that's a lot of dice, but with very low numbers. So that uh, this allows you to do one roll that produces a great deal of information. And so it's like, okay... Uh, I'm going to have your initiative be based on how many dice are in the set, and I'm going to have the hit location be based on which number comes up, but I'm going to have the damage based by how many numbers are in the set. So that by throwing one die, you get a bunch of randomized effects that are interrelated but semi-independent. And it works well. It's fast. It gives you a lot of... Uh, 
of richness to your randomizer without having to have a bunch of handling time for your randomizer. Right, not like a huge pool of dice, you know, you know exalted or something like that. Um, that's no, it's a good point. Played a lot of more Ross and Delta Green machine gunning a bunch of ships. <laughs> uh, oh, Glancy. Oh, Glancy. That that inspired me. There, you know, you'll if have you looked at the new Delta Green and how there's, uh, you know, oh, I called it kill damage. They've changed the name of it, but it's basically, you know, with with a weapon this big, you have this percentage chance of just evaporating a human being on impact. That's yours, Ross. It should be called <laughs> Ross's rule. Uh, you made my day. Uh, <laughs> did you hear that, Caleb? I, I got did. a rule. You have a rule. Yeah. Nice. I was just drumming my fingers waiting for those damage rolls. <laughs> and we have yeah, the recording. Uh, I think that was U-Boat Harouse. That was U-Boat Harouse. <laughs> the, most, the most legitimate... German machine gunning of civilian aircraft <laughs> in history. Uh, oh, God. Uh, good times. Um, let's see here. Uh, on another question um, on the magic schools. Um, specifically, they seem to be more. They seem to be less self-destructive and more of an easy come, more of an easy go variety of getting charges. Was that planned on purpose? Planned on purpose for the new era. That's probably just more of where we're at in our lives now. But or, And also, there's only so self-destructive you can be before it becomes you know, repetitive. If I had come up with an idea for a school where it's like, okay, what clearly makes sense is to mess up this particular part of your character, um, then I would have done that. But I started with the ideas I wanted to deal with. So you've got, uh, you know, cameraturgy, which is the magic of photographs. You've got photographers who really can steal your soul with a photograph. Um, And in that one, I'm like, having this just be self-destructive doesn't make sense. Photography is about the capture of experience and about creation. And so, I'm, you know, the burden for this is going to be that, you have to constantly be capturing experiences that are unique and creating things rather than, you know, messing yourself up like an epideromancer. Uh, And, you know, that fit for epideromancy. Um, So, I don't know, maybe I'm kinder, gentler, or maybe I had just strip-mined out all my self-destructive ideas immediately. I suppose what will wind up happening... um, Unknown Armies 3 has relationship mechanics. You start out with, you know, uh, slots for five specific relationships. So you can say, and you have to define one of them to one other character and one of them to the group of your characters. And the five roles are Guru, which is who you turn to for spiritual uh, and, you know, big picture stuff. Mentor, who you turn to for practical, everyday life advice. Your guru is who you ask what it's all about, and your mentor is the guy you borrow a nail gun from. Uh, There's your favorite, which is the person who brings the most joy to your life. Uh, There's your burden, the person who you feel uh, most, most responsible for, the person that you have to take care of, even though you may not find it real fun to be around them. And let's see, what's the fifth one? We've got mentor, guru, oh, protege. And your protege is someone that you feel that you can make them a better version of themselves. And so you can assign these relationships to other characters, or you can assign them to specific groups. So you can be like, oh, my guru is the Catholic Church. That's where I go when I need spiritual sucker. Or you can say, you know, my guru is Steve, because ever since he took all that mescaline, man, he's been super mellow. <laughs> it's a shame we're going to kill him soon. <laughs> and so, yeah, you could, I'm sure there's a school idea where the idea is that, okay, I am going to get points by 
you know, I'm going to charge up by burning points off my relationships, by hermiting up and isolating myself. Uh, so there's some that could be done. So there is that new dimension for self-destruction. Machumancers can be pretty self-destructive because it's like, oh, well, I'm either going to get more hardened or more crazy. And as that happens, the stuff I'm going to have to do in order to shock myself into getting a significant charge is just going to get worse and worse. I'm going to have to, you know, the... The process of liberating myself from expectation is de facto a process of becoming more and more of someone who would horrify past me. So that one's pretty self-destructive. Okay. okay. He said defensively. <laughs> um, and uh, finally, uh, the other questions... Um, have you gotten any pushback, including a school based around guns in the new edition? Uh, or I guess any other criticism so far from playtesters or uh, backers? No, there's been mild criticism. And Okay, anytime you do something, there will be people saying, well, why didn't you do X? Um, but, you know, you can't please everyone. Something that has come up in this edition is people asking, well, why didn't you update the classic schools of unknown armies, Dipsomancy, Epidiromancy, Mechanomancy, Cleomancy? Uh, and, you know, my answer to that is that we chose to do a bunch of new stuff because I hoped it would... I hoped it would please the old fans who have stuck with Unknown Armies for so long and have been so faithful for it. It's not like you can't find those old schools easily. Uh, it's not like you can't get the books and can't get the PDFs. Uh, and I wanted to do new things rather than to redo old things. And I'm sure that if we had redone those old things there would be a different group of people saying, well, why did you do all this stuff that's already been done before when you could have done some, could have spent those pages on something new? And having been through, you know, relaunches of multiple properties right now, there literally, literally is no way to please every fan. <laughs> so I, I decided to go on the side of new stuff rather than old stuff thinking that it will be a lot easier for a fan to update the old stuff than to create something new entirely. I mean, that's my value add, right? Mm -hmm. My whole job is to do things that you either can't do or don't have the time to do. Uh, makes uh, sense. I can't wait to, can't wait to dive into dive the, into uh, the uh, books. Uh, um, um, do you have any other questions? Any other questions? Uh, no, I'm just... So it was like to play. I'm probably gonna go home and start reading. Oh, I actually do. Actually with you campaign next. Uh, there's one. Uh, there's one left. What kind of uh, games have you been running? What have been the plot lines uh, to give people um, ideas of what you do in new armies? I know we have. Okay. Some, we have lots of the um, the first game I ran, uh, we had uh, everyone came up with characters. We decided to set it in uh, I think South Carolina. And one of the players immediately looked up South Carolina serial killers and came up with a doozy named Pee-wee Gaskins. Pee-wee Gaskins is the first person in American history to commit a premeditated murder while on death row for a different premeditated murder. <laughs> Stew in that for a bit. <laughs> so Pee Wee Gaskins was executed in South Carolina, and he he was truly a a monster. And so our fictionalized version of him, uh, all the characters had some Gaskins connection. We had uh, an alligator wrestler who was getting messages from beyond the grave from Pee Wee. Pee Wee Gaskins was his spirit animal. 
there was a woman who was a law student trying to get uh, trying to recover from the mysterious murder of her identical twin. She saw her identical twin ripped limb from limb by a seven-year-old girl. And then there was just this cop who was in the area and, you know, knew the other two and had seen enough weird stuff to know that, okay, you know, I'm not going to dismiss out of hand this idea that Gaskins' ghost or spirit or something is still around and making mischief. And he was the guy who found a just pile of dead bodies in uh, a, a priest's house. And then after reporting this, you know, they, the police come in, tape everything off, pull out these four mangled corpses, which then disappear from police custody. And so he's like, okay, that's troubling. <laughs> So their objective was find out what's going on with all this Gaskins ghost stuff. And all I did was throw them distraction after distraction after distraction. But, um, yeah, so what they were doing was trying to find out what Gaskins' ghost was up to. uh, And, oh, it was something. Uh, What was going on with the house where the dead bodies were found and what was up with them and basically it was a lot of mystery unraveling and it went pretty well and this was even before we had the objective system quite as formulated as it is now so I think if I'd had those tools if I built those tools by that time I probably could have uh, you know run it even a little cleaner but as it was everyone had a good time nice uh, yeah. I can't wait to run my own Kiwi, the ma- serial killer themed game, or something even worse. You know, we have an albino here in Springfield. Well, you know, it's going to be what your uh, yeah, yeah, what your players want to play, and this is going to be a hard. Um, I don't know how much of a hard sell. There are some people who would just never play it that way, right? Who would never say, mm-hmm. "I'm not going to give the, I'm not going to let the players come up with what they want to do." You'll get Kanye the Giant and his sport you, right? You've seen that uh, that um, bit from Oh Key and Peele, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Although Kanye has to be an adept, right? I mean, <laughs> all big, yo. So. <laughs> Um, some people just won't permit that, but what I have tried to do with this is make it easier to go week to week GMing and not feel like you're completely at sea and just pantsing it. Uh, instead of feeling like you need to, before they even generate characters, have five adventures worth of plot line tracked out in front of them. Make sense? Yeah. 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 Awesome. awesome. Uh, well, the Kickstarter is going, going, on, going on until April 29th. Right. Yes. Uh, so, so back in now. At least get on it, people. <laughs> I'm pushing this thing. <laughs> uh, consider it. Consider it. All right. Uh, 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 Thanks for listening. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure.